All right. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Alpine First Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading a big block of scripture, a big well-known block of scripture, starting in verses 19 through 34. I'm going to start off by reading that for us this morning so that our minds can get oriented with this passage and where we'll be going today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this morning, with this large, well-known block of Scripture, it's likely that you've heard a sermon or two or three or ten on one of these passages. This is one that is famous that pastors go back to. And there's a lot that can be said about these passages. However, this morning, we're going to focus on the three imperative statements that Jesus gives within this passage. Maybe you noticed them as we read them. The three imperatives, store up your treasures in heaven, you can't serve God and money, and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, out of these three imperatives, there's one that stands above the rest. Do you see it? It's what Jesus says here, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's the one that the other two flow from, the first step in the process. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, the reason this is because it shapes how we see God and see others. You see, we cannot seek to store up treasures in heaven by doing what we think are righteous acts and not seek God, not seek his kingdom and not seek his righteousness. If we do righteous acts not seeking God, we'll turn into the person that we saw that prays to be seen or the person that fasts to be seen. Their reward is given to them. 
When I was a kid, my cousin and I uh, went to a revival with my grandfather. I think it was in the Toledo Bend area. I don't remember how old we were. We were probably like the eight and nine range. And uh, somehow during the revival, after the revival, I remember us being in the car and being stopped by these people that were having a conversation with my grandfather and the minister that were in the car. And they were telling them that, um, that they didn't have enough, that their money was running short and they needed more and uh, they haven't been giving to the church. And the minister's response was, well, you need to give more to the church. If you give more to the church, then the Lord will bless you. You see, we treat these passages as some sort of Roth IRA or some sort of money market account that if I put more money into it, then God is going to bless me. You turn on CBN, the Christian Broadcast Network, and you'll see it. Wolves promising to bless you with money if you bless them with money into their kingdom. But is that what Jesus is saying in this passage? Maybe we've interpreted this passage that way before. Well, I don't have as much as I want because I've not given enough to the church. And if I give more to the church, then God is required then to bless me. But is that what Jesus is saying? Does Jesus ask for money in this passage? Does Jesus say, hey, give me some money to keep my ministry going today. With your monthly gift of $20, I'll send you a prayer towel, and we'll cast out that demoniac down the street. Does Jesus say these words? No. He doesn't say this in this passage, because Jesus isn't only talking about money. Jesus is talking about money, but not only about money. This passage today requires us to take a deep introspective look at ourselves. And if you were here last week on the Sermon on Fasting, how fitting is that? I mean, that we're coming right off of that and Jesus is still wanting us to take an introspective look within ourselves. Jesus is and is not talking about money. He is concerned about how we view money, how we spend money, and how we can use our money to help make it on earth as it is in heaven. So today, no one can say I'm off the hook because I don't have a lot of money. No one can say that Jesus really isn't targeting me because my bank account is not flush. Jesus isn't targeting those who are wealthy among us and somehow making wealth bad, but rather Jesus is calling us to consider what drives and motivates us. Let's start out by looking at verses 22 through 24, where Jesus is going to end by saying you cannot serve God and money. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now consider with me for a moment The power that money has. Money has the power to give us the ability to not ask questions. Say that again. Money has the power to give us the ability to not ask questions. With the right amount of money, we gain the ability to lose concern for the cost and the outcome. With the right amount of money comes power, influence, position, and security. With the right amount of money, we lose the concern to seek God and his kingdom first because I have what I need to provide for myself. 
Think about the power that money does wield for us. It creates within us this ability to not ask questions. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. The Greek word here for money that's translated in our body, in our Bibles as money, is mammon. And it can be translated to other things outside of money, like property, wealth, or security. But in its truest sense, it can mean this, in one which something trust. What is it that you trust in? What is it that you seek after? What is it that gives you comfort and security? So it's not just money. It can be your job. It can be your status. It can be your reputation. And if we think about it, this is one thing that I think is, is plaguing us, and not just us like adults, but I think our children, our teenage children in this social media age is the reputation that we carry on social media. And so our children will drive their influence of what they can make themselves look like compared to the people that they see on social media. Because in that gives them reputation and safety and a place of identity. You see, mammon is not just money. It is where you are placing your trust and your hope. Jesus is calling us to have a deep, introspective look into ourselves. It's not just money. It's not just your job. It's not just your status. It is whatever you are willing to defend, whatever ideologies you're willing to protect. Consider the alcoholic that's telling you, it's not a problem. What is giving them their ultimate comfort? Is it not the bottle that they drink from? Is it not to dull the pain or to get comfort from the alcohol that it provides? Consider the gossip that is telling you, I just want you to be aware of this situation when they're really building up their own reputation to put someone else's down. Consider the pastor who wants you to celebrate all the good things that have happened under his ministry when it's really him who wants to be celebrated. This is what Jesus has been teaching us, that those who give, pray, fast, in order to be seen and boost their reputation, that their innermost desire is to be respected and admired by others. You see, mammon is not just money. It is whatever our identity is so fused to that if it were to break away from us, it would absolutely destroy us. And Jesus is saying that you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God, who is the ultimate provider, and then trust in something else to provide for you. What is it that you trust in? As I've been preparing this summer, I mean, this sermon, this has been really the hard part about preparing it. Because I cannot look into your hearts and tell you what it is that you're trusting in. I can't look into your hearts and tell you what it is that your heart is tempted to sway to, to put your allegiance to outside of God. But there is one who does. Proverbs 16.2 says this, All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. In other words, there is nothing that you do that is not seen, and there is no motive within your heart that the Lord does not know. He sees you deeply, and he knows you fully. You cannot serve God and serve Ramon. But Jesus isn't done here. He turns up the heat. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The eye, if you go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, has been a consistent theme. If you want to dive deeper into this passage, just in your home, during the free time, just go back and underline every reference there is to the eye. To see, to seek, to be seen, the eye that he saw, and you'll be surprised at how much this comes up. The reason is, is because in Jewish literature and with Jesus and his teaching, is the eye and what we see, our desire and what it's focused on, is directly related and correlated to the heart. The reason this is such a big theme for Jesus is because this is connected to the desires of the heart. The eye shows us the deepest desires that are within us. And Jewish literature had this phrase for the bad eye that's translated in our Bibles. Instead of calling it the bad eye, they called it the evil eye. And you'll see this phrase translated in various translations, primarily in the Septuagint, the, the Bible that Jesus would have read. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 15.7, uh, they're urging Israelites to lend money generously to the poor, even when the year for canceling debts was near. But in verse 9, it says this, that they warn against Israelites being stingy toward your poor brother. The translation is evil eye. Don't have an evil eye towards your brother. Proverbs 23.6 says, don't eat a stingy person's bread. But this translation will say, don't eat the bread of an evil eye. Proverbs 28 speaks of a greedy man, but they just translate this into the evil eye. We see this idea from these translations that greed, stinginess, covetousness, and idolatry is evil. That's the primary focus that Jesus wants us to see. These motives that we have that drive us to work against our brother is evil. It's evil within us. And if we aren't serving God and serving our own motives and desires, if we aren't serving God and protecting our own vices and desires, then who are we serving and what are we doing? James tells us that in God, there is no variation or change. He alone is good. So if we aren't serving God, who are we serving? Is it not the evil one? Is it not evil and Jesus takes this again a step further. Notice what he compares Mammon to. It's a master. Jesus is saying the reputation that you protect, the security that you want, the wealth that you try to accumulate is a master over you. It controls you. It's not something that just does a little bit of service for us. It has complete control over us. In the cultural context, who is Jesus speaking to? These are people that have served and worshipped other gods. There are temples in this day that are dedicated to them. Israel's own history is fraught with serving other gods to Molech, to Baal. Paul will speak about not going to temples and participating in idol worship. Jesus' own ministry has just kicked off by healing sickness, disease, and casting out demons. And Jesus is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. You can't go back and serve other gods. And this is still the message for us today. However, instead of going to temples to worship idols, we often go within ourselves. You see, we live in a day where we live in the age of finding oneself. This is the age where finding oneself is the greatest endeavor in life. 
Who are you? What are you meant to be? The creed of the American age is to find out your truth and live it. Because it's commonly held belief that if I just find myself, if I can find who I am, who I'm truly meant to be, then there I will have true freedom. But Jesus says it's not freedom you'll find, but a master that you will serve. It's not freedom that you will find, but a master that you will serve. This plays out in our politics today. Goes all the way into gender expression. This is expressed in phrases like, I'm just trying to find my truth, or I'm just trying to find what makes me happy to be fulfilled. The greatest endeavor is to find out who we are so that we can be set free, but it inevitably becomes a master that we serve. To find yourself, though, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything flows from that. And again, this is where I wish that we could have an honest conversation about what is controlling your thoughts and your motives and your desires. I wish I could help you answer this, and maybe we could through conversation. But often, it takes an honest look within ourselves and always through the help of the Spirit. The psalmist in 139, this is a paraphrase, he ends by saying, search me and test my thoughts. See if there be any evil way within me. This has been my prayer uh, as I've prepared for this sermon. Because it's easy for us to get wrapped up in what we're doing as a church. And, you know, VBS is coming next week. And we want to put on a good show for the kids so that they'll hear the gospel. But are they coming in just so that we can put on a good show and we can put our best face forward? Or are we working to make known the grace, truth, and hope, and love found only in Christ Jesus. Who is your master? Who are you serving? Maybe your master is money. Maybe that is the number one concern over worry in your mind. And I don't want to trivialize this. I realize inflation is insane right now. Everything is expensive. Most of us in the room probably live paycheck to paycheck. Money is a real concern for a lot of people. But is there an overworry? Are your thoughts more drawn to your worry than they are to your provider? And that's a good indication for us to where we stand in the master that we serve. Are your thoughts more drawn to your worry or are they more drawn to your provider? Now, greed is probably the last word that we would use to describe ourselves because there is always someone with more. Greed isn't always seen by the amount of money in the account but rather the reactions of our heart. And I want to offer a caveat here. Saving money and being responsible for the future is called for in Scripture. Jesus is not saying you cannot serve God and have money. Jesus is not saying that. I'll say it again. Jesus is not saying that you cannot serve God and have money. Jesus is saying you cannot serve God and serve money. 1 Timothy instructs us to provide for our families and enjoy the good things the Creator has given us. Proverbs commends us to work and for provision for the future. Jesus is not telling us to abandon work. Jesus is not telling us to abandon the work we are skilled and passionate about. But Jesus has given us various talents and abilities, different passions and pursuits to be a blessing to others. We need honest, kingdom-seeking dentists, lawyers, and plumbers. We need honest, kingdom-seeking bankers, salesmen, and teachers. We need entertainers that see their gifts as illuminating the glory and beauty of our Creator. 
We need healthcare workers that lovingly and compassionately care for their patients. Every job that is there to work, we need men and women who love Jesus and seek his kingdom and righteousness in their work for the glory of God and for the good of others. We need people who serve God in truth and in spirit and their lives become reflections of his light. The eye is the lamp of the body. What is it that motivates and drives you? Or is your heart and your gaze on? You cannot serve God and money. The other imperative that Jesus gives us is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What in the world does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? First, we seek his righteousness. That's it. He tells us, seek his righteousness, that we place our faith in God with a believing loyalty to him, the true master. An honest assessment of ourselves is that our, at best, at best, our motives are often mixed. There are days when we are full of light, but often there are days when the darkness creeps in. Now James, the little brother of Jesus, his letter is seen by some scholars as a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read back and forth, you will notice some obvious connections that he is making. Notice what James says here in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Who does every good gift and every perfect gift come down from? The Father of light, the pure light, the true light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. The Father of lights, who there is no variation or shadow due to change, there is no darkness in him at all. How do we deal with the darkness within us? We trust in the one who has no darkness. I believe that John is picking up on some of these themes as well. Consider everything that we've read in the Sermon on the Mount in 1 John chapter 5. I mean, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. It says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? First, we seek his righteousness, the one that is all light and no darkness of all, because we are cleansed by the Son of his blood. Second, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Second, we seek his right ways. We tend to think about God's righteousness as only something that he gives something that's imputed to us, and now that we're covered by his blood, and now we're good to go, everything's fine. But we often don't have to question what the Lord has commanded us to do. The Lord has commanded us to walk in his right ways. To seek the kingdom is to seek his right ways. Here is James again. He says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We read this in Isaiah 58 last week. The purpose of true fasting, God says, is not this fast that I is not this the fast that I've chosen for you? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Jesus has been telling us what it looks like to live within the kingdom. And now he is instructing us that we can't have dual motive, dual purpose, dual mammon, that we serve God and God alone. Consider, we don't let lust, anger, greed, or reputation rule over us. To hold on to unforgiveness over someone is damaging to them, but it's also a master over you. To hold on to forgiveness is a master over you. It requires you to hold on to bitterness and anger, to give, to see everyone through lustful eyes is a power over you. It requires you to make them less than human. To withhold a generous way of life has power over you. And this is your treasure. This is where your heart is. Withholding forgiveness, finding pleasure in lust, holding on to wealth, being ungenerous, that is your treasure. It is your master, and you aren't serving God. And this is a treasure that you will receive. Consider Jesus when he says, when he's comparing heavenly and earthly treasures. This passage might seem like a, a hard turn. We were talking about almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now all of a sudden Jesus is talking about treasures in heaven. But just notice over chapter 6 how often Jesus brings up words that can be associated with treasure. This next slide, we just have almsgiving here. Where you beware the practicing your righteousness, that is your reward. They have received their reward. And then lastly, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right is doing, so that you may, your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Next, through prayer. <clears throat> and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues. That is their reward. Notice the connection to debts and money. The next slide, through fasting, it's the same. Those who want to be seen in their fasting have gotten their reward, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is connecting all of these dots to help us see that there are very specific treasures that we lay on earth, treasures that serve mammon or money, that serve our reputation, earthly treasure to be seen by others, and Jesus says, you've received your reward. But the heavenly treasure is to serve God, to be seen by God, and your reward is in heaven. What is the heavenly treasure in the truest sense that we see from these passages? It's to be seen by God, to be known by him, and to be in him. 
But in another sense, though, it is something just beyond our ability to totally comprehend. That one day, when all things are made right, when it truly is on earth as it is in heaven, there will be no more sickness and no more death, no more wayward thoughts, no more inward anger, no more crippling anxiety, no more injustice. Heaven is not just the absence of things like sickness, anxiety, and anger, but heaven is also the presence of others. We're friends and families who are in Christ Jesus, who have gone before us, have been completely restored and healed. Heaven is the presence of complete and full Sabbath rest. Heaven is the presence of other saints and believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Heaven is the presence of complete and full love without unmixed motives. And lastly, presence. Heaven is the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to touch Jesus in the flesh. Isn't that going to be amazing? To make it on earth as it is in heaven is to make our lives as much of the kingdom of God as we can now. Now zoom out with me in your minds for a moment so that we might remember Jesus' full teaching on this sermon. It can be easy for us to hyper-focus in on a passage and forget that this is just one complete sermon by Jesus. This is not the first time that Jesus has likened his disciples to light. The first time Jesus does is by proclaiming that the kingdom of God is like a city on a hill. It's like a lamp that's on a stand. It's light gives out throughout the house. And who are these people that make up the kingdom of heaven, that give light, that are the city on the hill? It's the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemaker, the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the pure in heart, those persecuted for righteousness. Those that are these things are the salt of the earth. They are a city on a hill. They are a lamp that is to be put out on a stand to give light to the entire house. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul in Ephesians is going to go deeper into this in saying that he has brought two people, two groups of people that were formerly disassociated and made them now one in Christ Jesus, that we are now one humanity in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is saying, is if you serve any master that breaks this unity, you serve any master that does not give forgiveness to your brother, that does not seek the peace, the bond of peace through the unity of the Spirit, you are like an anti-Christ. You are literally serving as one that is anti to the work of Jesus. If you withhold forgiveness, if you are a bitter and angry person, if you look at other people with lust, you are operating as one that is anti the work, mission, and ministry of Jesus. It's darkness within you. It's an evil eye. These are hard words for Jesus. So today, what does that mean for us? How should we conclude where our hearts are, what we should do? We should remember that first we seek the kingdom and his righteousness, that we've been given righteousness freely by Jesus. But second, we bring forth his kingdom by living in right ways. And then lastly, Jesus is going to sum up this portion of his sermon in this way. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Maybe you have been in a season of anxiety and your friend has quoted that to you and it's not been a lot of help because you've heard it a thousand times before. You don't really know how to deal with it. But here's what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that our lives are more than the material things that we collect. Our lives are more than the material things that we collect. And our needs, he provides. What you need in your life, he provides. Now, this might be difficult to see because we live in one of the richest nations ever. None of us are poor compared to the world standard. We'd be in the top 1% of the world. There is not often a day, I don't know that there's ever been a day in my life where I have had to worry about food being on the table. There's not a day that I've had to worry in my life about drinking clean water. There's not been a day in my life where I've had to worry about my clothes ripping or tearing. I've got a closet full of them. Jesus provides our needs. And if you see in your life where you don't think Jesus is providing your needs, maybe you're too blurred in vision by your own provision. I'll tell you a story about uh, Dr. Helen Rosevere. She was a missionary serving uh, in the jungle of Africa in a remote village where she was the head of an orphanage. She had gotten a call in the middle of the night uh, to a lady who was giving birth to her second child. Her first child was about two years old or so, but sadly, despite everything that they did uh, while that mother was giving birth, she died. Now, the baby survived, and Dr. Helen knew immediately that they had a problem. They were in a village with no electricity. The mother had died, so they now had to fight to keep the baby warm so that it would survive. They were completely primitive. So she sent one of the midwives to go get a hot water bottle to keep the baby warm. After some time, the midwife comes rushing back and kind of in a panic says, I'm very sorry, doctor, but I was boiling the hot water. I filled the hot water bottle and suddenly it burst. And it's our last hot water bottle. There's no way they could replace it. They're in a remote village near the equator. So what do you do? There's not much you can do. You get the people and you start creating rotations of these people to keep the baby warm by the fire. Uh, the next day, Dr. Helen went to the orphanage at midday, as she normally did, to pray with the children. She would tell them for things to pray for, and she had a list of things. And in that list of things, she mentioned uh, that there was a new baby uh, that needed a hot water bottle and to pray for her little sister uh, who was crying because her mother had just died. A little girl burst forward and prayed in a very blunt way, Dear God, please send us a hot water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow because the baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. 
Dr. Helen admits that during this prayer, she's thinking, who in the world is going to send us a hot water bottle? We'd never even get mail, much less who will send us a hot water bottle when we live on the equator. And she said, little Ruth added, also God, while you're at it, send a dolly for the little girl so that she knows Jesus really loves her. Dr. Helen confesses that she didn't say amen. She knows in her heart that God can do anything, but this seemed beyond practical. That afternoon, Dr. Helen is teaching in the girls' school, and she gets word that there is a car, there's a visitor outside of her house. Uh, so when she gets to her house, uh, she notices that the car is gone, but there is a 22-pound parcel from southeast London at her door. This is amazing. It was the first parcel that she had received in four years since she had been a missionary in the field. So it's a special occasion. She gets all the girls from the orphanage. They start to unwrap it very carefully because they can't waste anything where they're at. So they string the paper together. They wrap it all nice and neatly. And then they open up the parcel. And on top were these brightly knitted jerseys that the kids loved. She starts handing them out, praying that they're enough for all the kids. Under that, there were some bandages for leprosy patients. Under that, there were some other medical items that they would need. But then she pushes her hand deep into the parcel. And within it, what does she pull out? A hot water bottle. Afterwards, she's holding it up. She begins to burst into tears. And little Ruth jumps into the front of the line and says, if he sent a hot water bottle, he sent the dolly too. She dives into the package, and what does she pull out? A little doll. Jesus hears your prayers, and he provides for us all of our needs. If you are living in this moment of temptation to see, I don't know how God is providing for me, maybe it's because we are tempted to worship ourselves and see ourselves as our true provider when there is one who is full of light and the ultimate provider of it all. Jesus cares for you. It might be hard to see. It might be hard to understand, to know, to grasp. But it becomes difficult to see when we serve Mammon, when we serve ourselves. We need to make a daily habit of praying, Lord, search me and test me. See if there be any evil way within me so that we completely can be completely humble before the Lord. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus doesn't just provide what we need for today. He provides also what we need for tomorrow. Notice in this passage, Jesus does not mention anything about death. He doesn't mean that death won't come for us one day. There is appointed a time, Scripture says, for all men to die. Death will come for us all. But Jesus provides what we need for today, and he provides the hope that we need for tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are you seeking his righteousness? Does the kingdom color everything that you see, how you see yourself and how you see people and how you are called to go and love and serve others? Notice this also. In this last passage, Jesus is talking about 
hungering and thirsting, what does he promise to those that hunger and thirst for righteousness? That you will be filled. It's our prayer this morning at Alpine that we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we seek the one that provides all of our needs. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that through um, our giving and our prayer and our fasting, that you humble us in such a way that we see our ultimate need is in you. Help us not to be fooled by the enemy, to think that we have light within us that is good and that we have everything within ourselves to accomplish everything that we need. But Father, help us to see that you are the light, that you are the true light, and you do not change. Father, thank you that you do not change, that you are good and you will always be. Help us to trust that. Help us to see how you've provided for us in the past, how you're providing for us today, and how you will provide for us in the days to come. It's in Jesus' name I pray.